Slate Spoiler Specials are brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast on The Master, the new Paul Thomas Anderson film. And joining me in the Slate studio is Forrest Wickman. Hey, Forrest. Hey, Dana. So you are a staff writer at Slate and a writer for the Browbeat blog. Yep, yep. I write for Browbeat and Explainer about once a week. And you've written a bit on The Master already, right? A couple posts? A little bit. Mostly side angle stuff. Uh, you have two reviews. so uh, Yeah, as to of today, I think Slate has probably four or five separate pieces on The Master. Right. And now we're adding some audio to it as well. But I also wanted to note that you and I, for the past two weeks have been on this yeah. quixotic mission to get this spoiler recorded. We tried to see The Master together right. last week before it opened in New York, and then we got shut out of the screening, and that was really sad. Then my screening on the, I guess, day before it was going to open also got canceled for technical reasons. Yeah, I was reasons. going to that one, too, and they texted us, or they emailed us 45 minutes Right, so then we were shut out of two in a row, and, uh, and we didn't have time to tape a spoiler. And then this week you got sick and maybe weren't yeah. going to be able to come in. So now, finally, I feel like we've crawled, we've dragged ourselves across the desert, and we're in our oasis under our palm tree Drinking our little glasses of paint thinner, and, and, yeah, Co- coconuts and paint thinner, and uh, and we're ready to talk about the master. So so let's get started. Are you like me, a fan of this movie? Uh, I'm a big fan of this movie. I love so many different parts of it. I have not decided whether it adds up to something greater than the sum of its parts or whether it's doesn't quite add up. Like whether all of its remarkable parts, the amazing score, the amazing performances, the cinematography that is. I mean, uh, uh, as a craftsman, it seems like B.T. Anderson is on a different level than almost anyone else out there right now. Um, whether it all comes together, I think much of it does, but I'm not sure it adds up to something greater than those parts yet. Yeah, I think we should get to that question at the end, the sort of big yeah. overarching question of what's it all about, right, Alfie. Right. I'm not sure that this is quite as about as much as his last movie, There Will Be Blood. But at the yeah. same time, I think it is also straining for mythic grandeur a little bit less, although there is some sure. occasional straining for mythic grandeur. And there's also some achieving of mythic grandeur. I mean, yeah. you know, there's there's moments where I feel like this does sort of aspire to and attain the status of some larger American myth and others where, where it doesn't. But so let's get into how this movie's constructed. I think that would be a fun place to start because I feel like when you come out of this movie, you're full of sensory impressions, especially if you see it in 70 millimeter, yep. which I've already which recommended. I'm recommending it again, if you possibly can. But yeah. because you're sort of so inundated with these sensory impressions, it's sort of hard to look back and say, like, how was, how was that story told? So, um, so I wanted to get into that a little bit. So we start the movie off um, on, at a, on a Navy ship, right? Or actually yep. on, the, on the beach near a Navy ship. What's the yeah. very first shot? So the very first shot is just, and, and he returns to it a few times, at least a couple times, is just this shot of, of the wake of a ship, which we're not sure exactly which ship it is. Um, but that's the very first shot. Then we get a brief shot of Joaquin Phoenix in a, in a helmet. It's, you know, it has this sort of piece. It's the Pacific is the water, so it's not like D-Day, but it has that sort of look of he's maybe about to attack somewhere. That's all we get of his war experience. Um, which it's it, the movie is extremely elliptical, and this is a good example of it. Like we we come back later, and he says, "I killed some Japs in war," but mostly he seems to be very repressed. Uh, and that's he, something that in a, in, a, in a more normal war movie, right, a post-war right. World War II veteran movie, you would be waiting for. Okay, when when is the flashback? When do we learn about the war trauma? Right. And what was the specific shape of the war trauma? Right. Right. And that never happens. I think the closest we no. even get to any sort of war flashback. I mean, essentially, this begins on VJ Day, right? So the war yep. is ending as it begins. There is one flashback later on where you see him in a helmet, sort of lighting a cigarette or something. You don't even really see his face. We do, yeah. We return to more or less the same image, but it's still not him in, him in combat. And the movie, So the movie follows him 
him very, very closely. And he seems he's traumatized by his experience in the war and doesn't seem to want to go back to it. Um, and we have we've, we have the same experience with him. Basically. Right. So we learn from very early on in the movie and with very economic brushstrokes that Freddie Quill is a very strange guy. Right. He's a weirdo. He doesn't fit in with the Navy. He doesn't fit in anywhere. Right. So the second or third shot of the movie is him and he's chopping these coconuts. And then for some reason, it's pretty unclear. He puts his hand over the coconut right when he's about to chop it. And it looks like he's about to chop his hand off. But he stops for a second and he checks his hand and it's still okay. And then the very next scene, there's uh, a bunch of soldiers have made this woman made of sand. They've been out to sea. They apparently haven't seen any women, I guess. And or at least Freddie ha- hasn't, and he's turned on by this woman. He gets down over her, and he starts humping her, and at first maybe it's sort of funny, and then he's doing it too long, and it gets weird. Um, and then he's masturbating into the ocean. Right. And, then, and we get an explanation of an- another reason it's so elliptical. is he's uh, One of the next shots is he's taking jet fuel and making it into this uh, hooch and... Um, and then cut to him, and he's like laid out on a mast while his fellow soldiers uh, throw bananas at him, which is maybe one of the first un- first of many unforgettable images from this movie. Um, and so we are meant to just infer, oh, he got too drunk, and he woke up, and he has no idea what happened. And then um, he's being interrogated by uh, the fellow by the soldiers. He's among many soldiers that seem to have PTSD, and he's being interviewed, and. Uh, it's the first maybe echo of Scientology in that the, the interrogation ab- about his memories and these things he doesn't want to remember are sort of um, the way it, it happens is just like in Scientology. In fact, I remember more of the scene. There's a lot of this movie that didn't that was in the trailers that didn't make it into the movie. And one of those things was there was an interview with Freddie Quill where they're asking about him about were you in a fight? And um, he doesn't answer. And a lot of people writing about the trailer because everyone writes a lot about trailers including myself these days um, was a lot of people thought oh is that is that like auditing Um, because it's just like it um, and I don't know if anything comes of that or not, but I think it's something we're supposed to think about. Well, that I didn't hadn't thought of those as, as, as auditing sessions or processing yeah. sessions, as they call them in this right, movie, right? right. The, the kind of um, the kind of strange back and forth therapy style interview that happens as you start to be indoctrinated into the cause, and we'll get to the cause in a minute. Yeah. So that's in a way chapter one, or maybe the prologue of our movie, right? We've established right. that there's this bizarre guy, Freddie Quell, who's sort of sexually obsessed, um, alcoholic, alcoholic, drinking strange concoctions that he creates out of jet fuel. And it's hard to imagine how he's going to place himself after the war. Right. So the transition between this prologue that establishes who Freddie Quell is and the part of the movie where we follow him stateside, I think, is, is a really elegant moment in the film that I wanted to pinpoint because I think Paul Thomas Anderson is so good at this. He's really, really good at transitions, temporal transitions, and just packing a lot into that trans- transitional moment and making it really elegant. And the way he does it is he crossfades, I believe, between Freddie's face as he's in one of these psychiatric interviews talking about his mother and a photograph, a very um, posed uh, commercial style 50s photograph of this beautiful woman smiling at the camera who of course you first think well, that must be his mother he must have a picture of his mother and uh, and as it turns out it's a commercial photograph in a place where he's now employed as a commercial photographer in 1950 after the war all those years have elapsed and we don't quite know what happened during them he's still really messed up and he's working at this portrait studio 
Right. So he, he's taking these perfect images of the 1950s, but he's still this awkward Freddie Quell. He tries to uh, start an affair with this woman, but he's too drunk, and so he botches it. And then this he beats uh, up one of to, his photography subjects, right, which I think we're supposed to, which I think his motive is that he's jealous because he keeps asking him about you have a wife, right? And you're so you're married, right? And he's just like cock blocked himself the night before, and so he's he's mad at this guy for no other good reason. He gets in a fight, and then he's off to the next job, which. He also messes up. By so in another crossfade, we suddenly find him as a, maybe a lettuce picker or a cabbage picker somewhere right. near Salinas. Yeah. So the, and the most interesting part of this lettuce sequence, very quickly, is um, that he's making his concoction again. And then um, everybody's coming around and they're asking him for more concoction. He's like, no, 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 no. And we, we're not sure why that's happening until another guy comes up. And he and Freddie keeps refilling his bottle. And then he says, you know, you kind of look like my dad or something like that. And then this guy, we, and we don't know whether he dies, but... Presumably, on some level, Freddie was intentionally sort of. He's accused of poisoning this guy. I didn't I think even it think was it was intentional. intentional. I thought it was the crazy Filipino migrant workers who thought that he had killed him. That's what I thought the first time, though. I wasn't sure. There was that line about you kind of look like my dad, and we know he has daddy issues, and his dad drank himself to death. The migrant worker section also ends with a beautiful, elegant crossfade. We get Freddie running across these rows. It's one of my favorite images in the movie, yeah. running across these furrows in a, in a bare plowed field as fast as he can to escape these migrant workers who are chasing him, presumably trying to kill him because they think that he's poisoned this old man. Right. And, and now is when I would say the real movie starts. The prologue sort of ends on this fade, and we find Freddie walking along what we later realize is a port in San Francisco, and he spies this yacht, this beautiful golden yacht from which music is pouring, and it mm-hmm. seems like this place. Of, of comfort and respite, so he promptly stows away and hides on this yacht. Um, and that's when he meets up with Lancaster Dodd, the character played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, this charismatic guru who loves uh, Freddie's hooch. So they, they have this conversation the, the next morning. Right. They sit down with some glasses of home-brewed paint thinner or whatever it is that, that Freddie mixes up. And so we get this great scene where Lancaster Dodd, or the master as we know him, we actually don't find out his name until quite far into the movie, which I think makes a lot of sense because nobody calls him by that name, right? right. It's sort of his official name. But to everybody else, he's the master. And he puts Freddie Quell through this interrogation, this really intense processing session as they as they drink their hooch together. And to me, this here's where the movie really starts, right? Here's where this relationship is laid out that's going to dominate the rest of the movie. And it's such a powerful scene. On a second viewing especially, it really struck me, the homoerotic currents of this scene, mm-hmm. right? It's not overtly a flirtation scene, but it's very, very intimate. And they very, very quickly get to a very deep place with each other. And right. you get a sense that most processing sessions don't go this way, right? Because most people don't handle the questions in the strange way that Freddie would. And, and that Dodd is really interested in that. And the two of them sort of have this spark. And as you pointed out, something I hadn't noticed is that they both smoke a cigarette after the processing session right, as well. in this very sort of post way. Right. Maybe. Now, what I think of is this sort of dreamlike middle section of the movie begins now. I think of it as this sort of musical montage, and tell me if I'm, I'm leaving stuff out or forgetting it, but we start to really jump time frames and condense time very, very heavily at this point. As Freddie's getting indoctrinated, right, um, he, the master starts to take him on, as, as he puts it, as his special protege and guinea pig, mm-hmm. and put him through these weird behavioral experiments. So we'll cross-cut between these behavioral experiments and memories of the war, memories of his sweetheart before the war, and we're really getting into sort of a more stream-of-consciousness kind of zone in, in the middle part of the movie? Yeah, so I, I, they go to New York for a while and it, it, it doesn't do so well. And then I think you're talking about when after that they go to Philadelphia. And then I, th- I, I sort of, on the second time, it, it struck me that this is broken down more or less into two sequences. And and they are they are sort of montages. The second one is is basically a training montage, um, where he's being sort of slowly maybe brainwashed. Um, <clears throat> and then the, the first one is... Uh, 
it's all these sort of vaguely related things. And to me, they all have to do with actually like Freddie has gained the favor of the master. Um, the master loves Freddie. And I think uh, his, his wife, who is Peggy Dodd, played by Amy Adams, and uh, his son, who we don't meet that much. There's not that much of him but it, it, in the movie, but it's this character, Val. I think they're all sort of competing for the master's favor. And this plays out in, in a few ways. So, so, so there are a few sequences here. We we get um, there's one there's uh, this one odd shot where Joaquin Phoenix is imagining everybody at this party naked, and I thought everyone at the party was actually naked the first time I saw it, but then it only occurred to me the second time. All I just wrote about shot. this last night. Actually, I spent a long time taking apart that scene, and, and I think let's let's get into that scene because I think it's something that will stick with anybody who saw the movie. In fact, when I first walked out after my first viewing, I said to a fellow critic who'd been sitting next to me, "Wait, were they supposed to be really naked in that scene?" And now looking back, I I, I scoff at my my ignorance because by the end of the scene it's pretty obvious that it's a fantasy but whose fantasy is it supposed to be I, so I, I mean I think it's Joaquin Phoenix's but I, w- I never totally made sense of that it, it, it's definitely a scene that's meant to be erotic which pays off in, in, in the next scene which is when Lancaster Dodd is being uh, like uh, he gets a handjob from his wife at the oh yeah we have scene. to get to the handjob but let's stay at, with the naked party for well, just a minute well I want you to explain this to me because I, I have not otherwise made sense of it Oh, my God, I was up up all night writing 1,500 words on it, but now I, I don't know exactly how to resume it. First of all, I think that the party sequence is just beautifully done. I love its strangeness within the movie and that, that you don't know what to do with it. And I think it's one of the big arguments for seeing the movie again, that, yeah. that scene and, and scenes like it that feel like something that would be in – they're almost not of our time. To me, that feels like something that would be in a European movie from the 60s or something, yeah. right? Just very seamlessly moving into this fantasy. So there's not any indicator that there's a fantasy, right? There's not harps or, like, blurring of the image or anything like that. I mean, right. those are corny, but there's not any of the indicators that we're used to to sort of say, well, now we're moving into somebody else's mental space. And I'm not sure we've seen it so far in the movie, an out-and-out fantasy dream, although we do see more after the party scene, right? Right. There's at least um, one other one after that. And if there are more, I want you to point them out, because maybe I missed the other ones, too. But Um, in addition to just being kind of a beautiful piece of cinema, and a very visually striking, painterly kind of tableau, right, where every woman at the party is suddenly completely naked, but nobody acknowledges it, it just, it seems like, what I love about that scene is how multivalent it is, and how many different people's psyches could be feeding into that fantasy. I mean, I think we're supposed to assume at first that it's Freddie Quell's fantasy, right? Mm -hmm. He is kind of the observer of the party. He's really interestingly spatially set off from the party, Mm -hmm. and you really notice if you look how how essentially that scene cuts back and forth between two shots, right? You're either seeing a wide shot of everybody at the party, Mm -hmm. which includes the naked women after they get naked, and Philip Seymour Hoffman and Amy Adams, or you're seeing Freddie Quell off by himself in an easy chair, kind of drunkenly, barely conscious, watching the whole thing. Right. And because you never see spatially where that chair is or who he's looking at, it just it creates this odd dynamic between those two images. And it seems to me that Philip Seymour Hoffman, the master, is performing for him in some ways, right? I mean, this goes hmm. with your reading that they're kind of in love with each yeah. other, right? And, and that he's kind of putting on this show of how much sort of sexual power and just power in general he has over the people in that room. So the nakedness could be part of his imagination, right? Yeah. Here's my totally. harem, right? And, and he knows, of course, that that, uh, that Joaquin Phoenix's character is, is straight and is kind of sex-obsessed, right. right? So there's that. And then it occurred to me on a third viewing that it could also even be maybe Amy Adams' Peggy yep. Dodd's fantasy, that she could, her, her not exactly jealousy, but her protectiveness of the master, right, and her, her fear about him being sort of taken over by his followers could also be enacted by her seeing all the women in the room is naked, although she's one of the naked women. But do you remember that look she exchanges with Joaquin Phoenix or whoever is off screen? There's just a, there's this crazy kind of gaze that she directs at a certain 
certain spot off screen. Okay. And you just have to assume that she's communicating something to Freddie at that moment. Well, we definitely know that she's picked up on the erotic charge of, of this this gathering from the next scene where she uh, approaches Lancaster Dodd and he, she says something like, you need to not have these thoughts. I know you're having these thoughts. And that's that's when he she gets him off um, into the sink. And I think that's part of, that's that's more or less when she wins the power grab, this sort of battle for um, the master's favors. And, and but here's my question to you. What makes her do that? What what motivates the uh, the hand job sequence? Why does she feel at that moment that she needs to assert her sexual control over her husband while telling him, you can do anything you want as long as I don't know about it? She's essentially giving him license to cheat on her as long as it's private, right? But she's also kind of making sure that he knows that she's calling the shots. And I would love to know whether what motivates that at that moment was the gays exchange between her and Freddie at the party or just a general sense that, you know, everybody's trying to get their hands on my man. So, so I guess this is what I, I was um, trying to get into is that I, th- I think that this is when she re- really starts, as, as you said, her, her dominance over the master, um, partly because he's gaining favor, like he's starting to uh, become attracted to Freddie Quell's character. And then I think it's before this that we see Val, and this is uh, one of the first sort of crinkles in, in the, the master's charismatic facade that we see, where um, Val, his son, says he's just making it up as, as he goes along. Um, and I think part of the reason that he says that, he's off on the porch and, he's, and, and Dodd doesn't seem to really spend much time with his son. He's spending all this time with Freddie. Um, and so I think, you know, that's um, how he sort of disowns his, his, you know, relationship with his father in some ways. Okay, Forrest, I'm really enjoying getting deep into the weeds on this one and just talking about every single scene, but we need to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. The Spoiler Special is delighted, as always, to be sponsored by Audible.com, the leading provider of digital audio entertainment on the web. They have over 100,000 titles you can listen to on any device, including whatever you're hearing us on right now, and they have a special deal for spoiler listeners. You can get a free audiobook if you sign up here, audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. We actually have a very appropriate audiobook recommendation this week, recommended by Chris Wade, our producer, who recommends Unbroken, a nonfiction book by Laura Hillebrand, who is the author of Seabiscuit, among other books, and is a really, really terrific uh, reporter and writer. It's read by Edward Herman, who I don't know if you know him, Forrest, but he's a a great sort of character actor from the 70s and 80s. I remember him playing FDR in, I think, a TV miniseries, and he was fantastic. He has the perfect kind of voice and presence to, to read this story. And it's a biography of a World War II soldier like Freddie Quell, hopefully less weird, who survived several Japanese internment camps. And uh, it sounds like a, a really brutal and a really fascinating story. So again, that's Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand. And you can find it along with 100,000 other titles on audiblepodcast.com. And if you want to sign up there for the special deal, go to audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. Okay, so Forrest, go on. What else? Did, what else did you want to say about the movie? So the the next big sequence to me is it's the sort of training monta- montage where Freddie's doing this experiment. It's mostly sort of bookended by this experiment that um, Freddie's doing, where he's walking back and forth between a window and a wall, and, he, and we're not really sure why he's doing it. But eventually, he starts to imagine that like the window is the stars and the whole universe, and we, so it's it's one way we see the power of both religion and the mind to just make. Um, you know, the very real world into something far beyond it. The window becomes the stars in the whole galaxy. And and the the like most striking shot where we see that is that um, Amy Adams is talking, uh, the Peggy Dodd character is talking to Freddie Quell, and she says, and it's a point of view shot um, from Freddie Quell, and she says to him, um, my eyes are black, so you make my eyes black, something like that. And we see from Freddie's perspective how her eyes actually become black. We see her character with these really creepy, I think, um, black eyes. 
Yeah, that's a beautiful moment and one of the few moments where the, the there's point of view is used to actually show some some dangerous, frightening thing that's happening in Freddie's mind. And that one little image of the eyes turning from green to black really is, is very powerful in that respect. You know how much he's been changed. So let's get into our WTF portion here of the stuff that we didn't get in this very complex, ambiguous, all that kind of movie. Some of that complex ambiguity is great. Some of it really does leave you just scratching your head and never quite having answers. And I wanted to know what you thought was up with the the motorcycle segment, this big scene that's also a chapter transition, essentially, where they're in Phoenix giving a conference for the cause. And uh, and Philip Seymour Hoffman takes his daughter, his son-in-law, and Freddie mm-hmm. Quell out to this dry riverbed, this this total wasteland in the middle of nowhere, and challenges them to this strange motorcycle ride experiment. Right. Pick right. a point in the distance and ride toward it as fast as you can. Right. In addition to feeling very dangerous, this scene, right, because you keep expecting that somebody's going to completely wipe out helmetless in this riverbed and just be, like, smeared across the, mm-hmm. the ground, which never happens. There's also just there's something, again, that feels like it could come from some Antonioni movie from the 60s or something. It really seems like a place that we haven't been in this movie before. And Mm -hmm. I don't quite get what it's doing in there. Story wise, it gets Freddie to the next chapter, because when he has to pick his point, he just rides his motorcycle off into the distance and proceeds to disappear and abandon the cause completely. But why do you think Anderson chose this riverbed motorcycle contest as a way to separate the master and the disciple? Yeah, I, I mean, I had the same reaction. I've, I have no idea. I love the scene. I, like, there are beautiful shots in it, and it's very as suspenseful. As pure cinema, it's, it's beautiful. It works better the first time, because there is all the suspense there, and you do think somebody's going to crash, and then the second time, I'm sort of just thinking, oh, we want to get through this. You went through it three times. I don't know how it plays by the third time. Um, the I, I have I can make no sense of that scene really. I, I, you know, in I did this um, breakdown of the ways in which the movie uh, parallels Scientology um, and the religious parts of the movie do parallel it very closely. Um, and with that scene, I made this point where it's true that um, L. Ron Hubbard did get in a motorcycle accident in, in southern Spain, uh, and it was a significant event in his life. And so maybe it's sort of paralleling that aspect of L. Ron Hubbard, um, but that doesn't still doesn't work in the movie. Right. Um, Even if you knew that about L. Ron Hubbard, all yeah. that would do is sort of make this strange false parallelism where you'd be saying, OK, so where's the accident? Exactly. But actually, that speaks to something that I quite like about the movie. I don't... I guess love the motorcycle scene or really understand the motorcycle scene. But I do love the way this movie again and again sets you up to believe that there's going to be some horrible conflagration of violence that never quite happens. Violent acts do happen, no question mm-hmm. about that. But from the moment we see Freddie acting like he might hack his hand off at the beginning, I feel like there's these teaser kind of moments, right? Somebody gets beat up but not killed, right? right? And especially after seeing There Will Be Blood that ends in this kind of horrible conflagration of violence, you keep thinking, well, when is there going to be blood? And in this movie, in a way, spoiler, there never really is. Right, right. Yeah, another sequence where that happens is when they're digging up this book of of Lancaster Dodds and uh, Dodd is carrying a gun and Freddie Quell is walking behind him um, and I kept I don't know if you had the experience of just worry, you know wondering whether Freddie Quell was going to somehow attack him from behind it's the in, in some in many of these sequences it's the way that the, the sequence is shot in the motorcycle sequence he's running right towards the front of the frame and you can't really see what's in in front of him and that's where the suspense comes from. So the there will be blood com- comparison it seems to be something that he, Anderson maybe is even gesturing towards um, intentionally because one of the the way this movie ends is with a cut. It's in the future. We're not sure how far into the future it is, but suddenly um, Lancaster Dodd is uh, behind a desk and 
uh, Freddie Quell is coming up to meet him, and it's just it's just like the the scene, and there will be right. right at the There's end. a con- big confrontation over a desk between right. two two very strange men. So let's talk about to the extent we have anything to spoil. Really, it's what happens between Freddie and the master at the end, right? Since right. this is basically the story of their troubled relationship. So what happens when they meet over this this desk in in his in his off- new office in England? Um, so I think that this is where a lot of the the, the most interesting themes of the movie come out for me, where um, first, actually, he has a confrontation with Amy Adams, and Amy Adams tells him, you just can't take the world straight, can you? Which is a reference to how he's an alcoholic, but to me, it also, it's this very ironic thing coming from the member of what appears to be a cult, saying that he can't take the world straight when she's been making him hallucinate things. Um, and and he has a very similar conversation with Philip Seymour Hoffman, where Philip Seymour Hoffman says, um, and I more or less have the quote down here, if I can find it, um, but he says, if you figure out a way to live without a master or any master, be sure to let the rest of us know. Um, because you'll be the first person in human history right. to have done it, right? Which is, I mean, which is the closest that the movie comes to stating its own exactly. theme. Although, of course, you have to keep in mind that the person saying that is the, the, the cult leader, right. right? So that's always being colored by his vision of the world. Right. And he's saying it to this deeply troubled person. So Freddie Quell might not be able to take the world straight, but I don't know if that necessarily means that P.T. Anderson is saying that people can't take the world straight without adding in some sort of element of, of religion or spirituality or just drinking themselves you know, to black out all the time. Well, and the strangest thing of all in the desk scene is that it becomes a musical all of a sudden, right? Mm-hmm. There's this moment, there are many important moments in this movie where somebody sings to someone else, right? We talked about one of them in the, the naked party scene. Right. Um, and this is one of the strangest and most beautiful ones, I think, is that as they're basically saying goodbye, as we're kind of realizing that Freddie Quell is not going to continue to follow the cause, and for whatever that means, he's going to try to take life straight, then Philip Seymour Hoffman, or, sorry, so then Master bursts into song and sings him a cappello, this very romantic song, Slow Boat to China. I'd like to get you on a slow boat to China all by myself alone. alone. Yeah, and so it's it's when we get, um, I guess, most directly the how romantic, at least from the master's side, this relationship is. And then it comes back to these images of boats and seas. But I don't know. I hope that you were able to make more of that scene than I was able to because I, fa- I found it a very powerful scene. I don't think as a payoff it's... Uh, quite as striking as the end of There Will Be Blood, and I think that's one reason that this movie may not connect with audiences quite as well. Like, you know, a lot of critics had problems with the end of There Will Be Blood, but I think it had the milkshake scene that became this meme, and everyone agreed was just awesome. And this movie doesn't quite have that. It's To some extent, it's about, like, how you don't, you can't get real answers to big questions. Yeah, it's a more it's a more melancholy and more open-ended ending. I think I think I may like the slow boat to China moment a little bit better actually. Right. I really really love the open-endedness of it and just the 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 kind of beauty of it. And sorry. I really love the open-endedness and, and just the beauty of it and the way Philip Seymour Hoffman handles that song. It's a, it's a gorgeous performance moment. But I did want to talk about one quick thing that we didn't think worked in the movie and that seemed more clear to me each time that it wasn't really working, and that's the flashbacks with Freddie's sweetheart, his past sweetheart. That was one moment, a rare moment in this movie, where I felt like it was doing something really conventional. Yeah, I, so I'm not conv- I, I actually um, might like these parts, but I was just I'm very confused as to when exactly they take place. We see it's all about this girlfriend Doris, and we see her at 16, and then we see her again at 23. And I'm not sure exactly when the 16 moment takes place, and I'm not sure exactly when the 23 moment takes place. It seems like the second time we're somewhere in the 1950s. I think all that temporal confusion is per- is purposeful on right. Anderson's part, really. I mean, he's very precise about time. If you notice when he's with the cult, every time he's mm-hmm. with the cause, you constantly know when it is, even what day and month it is. 
is for their yep. finding excuses to sort of say today is March 27th, March, 1950. 1950 yeah. And you see that he's with them for a couple months and he leaves them around May of 1950, right after the conference. Mm-hmm. But as soon as anything happens in the past that has to do with Doris, this high school sweetheart of his, or she's in high school, he seems to be about 30 when the two of them are together. Everything is completely temporally vague and you don't know. And I think that that is essentially just a way of showing the oblivion that Freddie exists in when he's not around the cause, right? He probably doesn't know what time and day it is because he's too high on paint thinner. So let's talk about Freddie as we last see him to the extent there's anything to spoil at the very end of the movie. He does say goodbye to the master, essentially. He decides that he's going to try to strike out on his own and, and, and live without the cult. And in a very chilling moment, he says, maybe I'll see you in the next life, right? Because right. the cause has all this kind of ideas about being reincarnated through in- infinite lives. And Philip Seymour Hoffman says, if I see you in the next life, you'll be my sworn enemy. So that's the end of that with them. But as we see Freddie at the very end, it almost seemed to me the second time through that it's something of a happy ending in its weird way. As screwed mm-hmm. up as Freddie is, he did achieve some measure of independence and self-actualization, right, and distancing himself from, from the cause. And as we last see him, he's again drinking in a bar. Mm-hmm. He picks up a woman. They have sex. And as they're having sex in this kind of playful, erotic mode, he starts to put her through uh, processing. Processing, yeah. He starts he to ask her the same questions name, that he was asked. Name. Right, right, right. And so I think that's the menacing aspect of it. Maybe Freddie doesn't have a master anymore, and he, but he, maybe he's becoming a, a, a sort of master to this woman. I, I don't... It seemed like a, a failed attempt to achieve mastery in a right. way, but it wasn't as, as menacing as that would sound, right, to be having sex with a bar pickup and, and asking them a bunch of cult processing questions. There is actually is a kind of a playful and, and almost erotic feel to, to those questions mm-hmm. at the end. And the very last shot we get of Freddy that I thought was really, really lovely that the movie ends on is him back with the sand woman yep. from the beginning, right? We see uh, him with a real woman, right. right? And then we see him falling asleep with his arm around this woman of sand. And it seems like a sort of sad, happy ending. I mean, in mm-hmm. some way, he's found a place that he can be in the world. It may be that he'll never relate to a real human and a sand woman is the closest he's going to get. But at least it sort of seems to me like Freddy will go on. All right. Well, Forrest, thank you for coming in for this this monster spoiler on a monster movie. Yeah, thanks for having me. I I, I want to continue just excising my memories of, of this movie from me until, uh, <laughs> until hopefully I feel better. Maybe it'll cure this cold, which I apologize to everyone for. Oh, no, you sounded great. Okay. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.